I recently saw a video of a person's reaction to seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time. And from what I understand, people oftentimes have similar reactions to seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time. There is usually a sense of awe. They usually call it breathtaking or they say it's spectacular or one of the things that you'll hear people say is it's massive. And I've never seen the Grand Canyon, but I had a similar experience when I first came to faith in Christ and I saw the abundance of evidence that testified to the divine origin of the scriptures and the truthful claims found therein. I thought it's massive and I didn't know it. There was manuscript evidence. There was evidence of prophecy fulfilled. There was historical evidence. There was internal evidence found within the scriptures. There was the logic of the gospel, and there was so much more. When I first came to Christ, I thought of myself as somebody who looked at something I never saw before and was amazed that it had been there the whole time, and there was this massive amount of evidence, and I found it to be breathtaking. Well, as we approach the text today, you might say that we are going to be reminded of a river of evidence, namely the miraculous works of God that are found in biblical history. So as to provide a little bit of context, let me say this. When you go through the scriptures, and sometimes people have a misconception of the scriptures, that you might think that every day, for every person who was in the scriptures, every day was, you know, littered with miracles. You go through the scriptures, and whether it's Abraham, or whether it's Isaac, or Jacob, or whether it's Moses, or Samuel, or David, that every day miracles were just happening. But actually, when you go through the scriptures in biblical history, rather we see more so that there are clusters of miracles. Clusters of miracles during the events of, say, the Exodus, before, during, and after. During the ministry of the prophet Elijah, and during the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And then during the ministry of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the apostles. And it makes sense that there would be clusters of miracles, of attestations and confirmations, especially when you think of the Mount of Transfiguration and you remember who was there. As Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of his apostles, three of them, James, John, and Peter, we remember that Moses and Elijah also appeared there with him. Moses, that one who was the mediator of the Old Covenant and the one who was identified with the law. If you go back to Exodus chapter 4, you remember that his initial sending, being sent to the children of Israel, was accompanied by signs to demonstrate that he was indeed sent by God. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Then there was Elijah, that Old Testament saint who represented the prophets, And during both of their lives, Elijah and Elisha, God bore witness to the authenticity of his prophets through miracles, even as he did during the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. More about that in a moment. But why I call your attention to this for this reason. When you look at those clusters of miracles and you say, why were those miracles happening? They were demonstrating the compassion of God. They were demonstrating the reality that this God is kind and he intervenes. But one of the things that they were also doing is that they were attesting to the authenticity, to the fact that these people were actually ones who were sent by God. They were authenticating, if you will, the message and the messenger. And I think that's an important part that can often be forgotten. So when you see, when you go through the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, you see a lot of miracles in the Old Testament context. You see, the prophet Elisha does a whole bunch of miracles. I think that in many ways, Elisha was a type of Christ. That even as Elijah was a type of the 
uh, of John the Baptist, I think Elisha was a type of Christ. Fed a hundred people with bread as a kind of precursor to the feeding that Jesus would do to the multitudes and so on. But when we get to the New Testament and we see the miracles of Christ and the miracles of the apostles, the breath is so much greater than anything that we had seen in the Old Testament. And maybe you never thought about this before. But in biblical Christianity, New Testament Christianity, the amount of miracles are so multitudinous. The attestations and the confirmations that God gave through miracles are so large, so massive. There isn't another faith system, if you will. There isn't another philosophical system in all the world that could even begin to hold a candle to the attestation and the confirmation of the living God that is found in biblical Christianity. So much so, I mean, you go through the scriptures and even those who are antagonistic to Jesus' ministry, they couldn't deny that he was doing miracles. Instead, what they had to do is claim that he was using evil power to do the miracles. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. He casts out demons by the prince of demons, by Beelzebub. Because they couldn't deny the miracles. They couldn't deny the fact that streets were filled with the sick who were then healed. They couldn't deny that. They couldn't deny that the dead were raised. They couldn't deny these things. So they had to say, okay, you know, he's doing these things, but he must be doing them by some evil power. And in like manner with the apostles, we saw this in Acts chapter 3. His antagonists would have loved to have prosecuted them for lying about healing those who were lame, for instance. But take the lame man in Acts 3. They couldn't say that they didn't do that. The people in the temple precincts knew that the man had been lame. Every day that they saw him there, he couldn't walk. He had, in fact, been lame from his mother's womb. And then when he was healed, the religious leaders couldn't deny it. They couldn't say he's not really healed because everybody would say, yeah, he's healed. He's standing right there. The evidence could go on, even outside of the text of Scripture. You go into the early 2nd century, you'd find somebody... And around the mid-150s, 165, around that time, somebody like Justin Martyr, that second century apologist, he appealed to Jewish unbelievers of his time, saying Jesus was, quote, manifested to your race and healed those who were from birth physically maimed and deaf and lame, causing one to leap and another to hear and a third to see at his word. And he raised the dead and gave them life and by his actions challenged the men of his time to recognize him. So there's a second century Christian who's saying Jesus did these miracles. Reminds me of Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 verse 22, telling his hearers right there on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was a man attested by God to you, he tells them, by miracles, signs, and wonders which God did through him. And you even go on, in the Babylonian Talmud, the rabbis saw a need to address the miracles of Christ because it was so well known that they in fact happened. So in the Talmud, they asserted, Jesus the Nazarene practiced magic and deceived and led Israel astray. In other words, Jesus' miracles couldn't be denied. And one of the greatest miracles, the greatest miracle you would say during the ministry of Jesus happened in the resurrection from the dead. I remember the story of one uh, minister who had told a story about this uh, young girl uh, who had been speaking with a very learned man, is how he put it. And that learned man said, don't you know how many saviors there have been in this world? And the young girl said, I believe in the one who rose from the dead. It's what sets Christ apart. He had the power 
Not only to lay down his life, but to take it up again. He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So you have all these miracles, but they're not only found in the ministry of Christ, they're also found in the ministry of his apostles. And that's what we see in the text before us today. Adversaries could not discount those either. People in Jerusalem were hearing about it, and it was becoming clear to many people that just as God confirmed the giving of the law at Mount Sinai through lightning and thunder, earthquake, and angelic mediation, God's presence in the theophany, and so on, so God provided abundance of miraculous attestation to the message of the gospel and the doctrine inseparable to it, not only through Christ, but through his apostles. Now, we're going to see that as we get into the text today. We're going to essentially do two things. We're going to walk through Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. And along the way, I want to teach you a little bit about the subject of miracles so that you might be um, not only protected by what the Scripture says, but prepared as well. And you'll see what I mean with regards to that as we get into the text. But we begin in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, where we read, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now this is amazing. If you stop and think about what's said here, do you know how many spin-off chapters, as it were, could be written based upon this very verse alone? Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done. And we're not told what they were, but just imagine. Imagine Thomas healing a man who was mute and couldn't speak. Imagine Thaddeus' ministry to a young child who was on the brink of death. Imagine Matthew being used by God to heal a man who couldn't see. And we don't know the details, but in this little verse, we are reminded that there were so many details and there were so many lives that were touched through the ministry of the apostles as God worked through them, as Christ worked through them, doing many signs and wonders. Note, the text doesn't say a few. The text says many signs and wonders were done through the hands of the apostles. Now, there's a few things we could overlook as we come into this text. One, you could overlook the fact that this was a promise fulfilled. Jesus promised his apostles that they would be endued with power from on high. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And here's another testimony to the fact that Jesus' words are always true. And another thing you could forget is that this was, for, uh, for them, an answer to prayer. You can forget that the apostles prayed for this very thing. You can go to Acts 5, 12, and you you can forget that they prayed for this in Acts chapter 4, verse 30. Remember in Acts chapter 4, verse 30, after Peter and John were threatened and released by the Sanhedrin, they met up with the church and they asked God the Father that he would grant them boldness to speak his word. Acts chapter 4, verse 29, and that he would stretch out his hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done through the name of his holy servant Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 30. So here we have a reminder of something that we would do well to be reminded of. And that's that God answers prayer. A reminder we would do well to be reminded of. Does God always do what we want him to do? No. If you treat prayer like a vending machine where you think if you put in the proper amount of time and the right kinds of petitions and out will come the right kind of answer, you have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of prayer. He's not the big vending machine in the sky. He is the living God. He is the Father of all who believe in Him by His grace. 
And oftentimes, as we've come to find, his will is different than our will. And so part of what we learn in prayer is to say, even as our Lord taught us to say, your will be done. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane showing that height of godliness to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But Scripture does remind us that God answers prayer, and there are plenty of testimonies to that throughout the Scriptures. And one way, there's many ways to guarantee that you will not have answers to prayer. But one way to guarantee that you will not have answers to prayer is to not pray. <laughs> if you want to ensure that you don't have any answers to prayer, just don't pray, and then you'll have no answer. Say, God doesn't answer prayer. Well, how much do you pray? I don't pray too often, but he just never answers prayer. And how do you know that? Well, I don't pray. Well, if you did pray, maybe some of those prayers would be answered. Maybe you'd be praying in his will on occasion, and then you'd have the great joy of seeing those prayers answered. James chapter 4, verse 2, right? You have not because you ask not. So let me just encourage you, brethren, as a brief aside, we see right here, you could overlook it, as we often do in our own lives, right? So many times we pray for things, and then when it happens, we forget that we prayed for it, and we just go on about our day like it's just a normal thing that happened. And you could forget that you prayed for it. In like manner, you could forget that Acts 5.12 is an answer to Acts 4.30. So I want to encourage you to ask, to seek, to knock, to pray to the living God. See that he might be glorified in your asking. And see, by his grace, him glorified in the answering. I thought of a, um, an account that John Whitecross, in his uh, work, The Shorter Catechism Illustrated, he told uh, of an account of Alexander the Great, who had this uh, philosopher who had worked in his court. He was a famous philosopher, but he was a poor philosopher. And he was in um, Alexander's court, and he found himself in such financial troubles that at some point he said, the only thing I could do is appeal to Alexander. So he appeals to Alexander the Great, and Alexander, as Whitecross notes, gave him a commission to receive of his treasurer whatever he wanted. So the philosopher goes to the treasurer and he demands, that's the language that Whitecross uses, he demands 10,000 pounds. The treasurer is shocked by this request and refuses to comply. He goes to Alexander the Great and he tells Alexander about this request, about how brash it was and so on. And Alexander heard him with patience, but when he was done, Alexander said, let the money be instantly paid. I am delighted with the philosopher's way of thinking. He has done me a singular honor by the largeness of his request. He shows the high idea he has conceived, both of my superior wealth and my royal munificence, or my royal lavish generosity. I share that with you because one can only begin to understand how our Heavenly Father is not only glorified when we say, not my will, but your will be done, but when we bring to him our petitions, even when they're large and even when they're extravagant, based upon his superiority and based upon his lavish generosity. I think John Newton had it right when he said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. You want to come to the living God and you want to glorify him by showing that you are trusting in him. He is the benefactor. You're the beneficiary. You don't try to give him a break by not burdening him with too many prayers as though his shoulders can't field all the prayers that we would bring to him. No, you glorify him by saying, I'm going to bring it all to you. I'm so dependent upon you. You are the great king. You are exalted, superior above all. And you are also generous. 
You are so lavish in your kindness. That's why I come to you. I don't see you as this stern, harsh, mean kind of God who will hold back good things from me even as Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that God was in the garden. I see you as so lavish, so generous. You did not withhold your only son, but you delivered him up for us all. How shall you not with him also freely give us all things? And then you know, even as you're bringing your petitions, oh, Father, would you save all of those who are in my family? Father, would you open the doors and raise up opportunities for church plans? Would you raise up ministries? Would you provide for those who are in need in our church? You bring to him these petitions, submitting to his will and saying, you know what? I know that your will is better than my will. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways above my ways and your thoughts above my thoughts. So I'm not trying to impose my will upon you. I'm just making my requests known because I know you. You're kind and you're gracious. You're great, superior, and your generosity is lavish. Come to him. Be reminded in Acts 5.12 that God answers prayer. It's a great reminder that we need often. Well, back to the text. Look back at the text. Still Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And we note, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. So here I want to uh, give you a little bit of a theology, a little bit of a primer on miracles. I think this will be tremendously helpful. We're going to walk through some texts of Scripture. First, let me remind you that in the book of Acts, we have seen already the connection between miracles and God's attestation or divine approval or confirmation of an individual's identity and message. I'll explain what I mean by that a little bit more. During Peter's sermon on Pentecost, you might remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he's speaking to his hearers about Jesus, and he said that Jesus was, quote, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So Peter's telling them Jesus was attested. He was set forth, proved to be who he said he was by miracles these demonstrations of divine power, by these signs, these arrows that pointed to who he was, these wonders, these miraculous works that provoked wonder and awe. And what was the purpose of them? Doubtless to show the compassion of God. Doubtless there are other things that could be said. But Peter's saying that Jesus was set forth, publicly approved of, confirmed to be who he said he was through these miracles. The miracles were calling cards to Jesus' identity as the Messiah so that he might be recognized. Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, said such things. Listen to some examples. John chapter 5, uh, verse 36, the second half, Jesus said, The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Were they displaying the compassion of God, the compassion of Christ, and those things? Of course they were. But he's saying, the works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And again, John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus said, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And again, John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So the miracles that Jesus did were not only gracious interventions of divine power to change things that otherwise would not be changed, but they were attestations that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Does that make sense? Okay. So now building upon that, secondly, when we come to the book of Acts, we see an emphasis that the signs and wonders were done through the hands of the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, we're told, Then fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And then we have an example of that in Acts chapter 3, the healing of a lame man. And then we come to Acts chapter 5, verse 12, which we are in right now, and the text says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. So God confirmed the message and the ministry of the apostles through signs and wonders. We see this reinforced essentially in Hebrews chapter 2, where the writer there, after making reference to those who heard Jesus, the first generation witnesses like the apostles, he went on to say that God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 2 said, speaking of his apostleship, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Why do I labor to make this point? I labor to make this point because there are many movements today that would fail to see how in the scriptures, miracles were not something that every Christian just went about doing all the time. Yes, there is the example of Stephen, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and the example of Philip, Acts chapter 8, verse 13, both of whom had unique roles within the history of the church and within the fledgling church. But the emphasis, this is what I want you to see. When you go through the Bible, you go through the book of Acts, you look at some of the surrounding epistles, you see the emphasis is that those like the apostles or those like the Son of God or those like Paul and Barnabas, Acts 15, 12, did miracles that God was confirming the doctrine that they taught and their ministry through those miracles. I say that because you are in for a lifetime of disappointment or deception if you think that someone can teach you to walk in the miraculous and it will be a normal part of your life just as much as breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It doesn't work that way. You're going to be in for a lifetime of disappointment if somebody tells you, look, your ministry is not fulfilled and you are not truly filled with the Holy Spirit unless you do miracles, signs, and wonders. Like, unless you get to that level, you're at a lower level. And if you don't remember anything else that I said, remember this. Take John the Baptist as an example. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Jesus said, among men that have been born to women, there are none greater than John the Baptist, doubtless other than him, within that historical context. So he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Jesus said, there's none greater that have been born to women than John. Yet, in John chapter 10, verse 41, we're told John did no miracle. Or more literally, John did no sign. Gifts of the Spirit are not the marks of your Christianity. The fruit of the Holy Spirit are the marks, is the mark of your Christianity. Love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness, self-control. So important. Don't, don't, don't mistake me. Does God answer prayer? Yes, he does. Everybody understand that? Do I believe that God answers prayer? Yes. 
Have we seen healing and life-saving answers to prayer according to God's will? Yes, we have. It's amazing. We have seen God do things that nobody could define outside of saying that was an intervention from God or that was something that was miraculous. That was God's intervention. So do I believe that God answers prayer in amazing ways? Yes, he does. But it is a serious misunderstanding of the straightforward teaching of Scripture to think that God has called you to go around like the apostles doing miracles, signs, and wonders. Do you want to know what God has called you to? He has called you to love, to love God, to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what he's called you to do? He's called you to love other Christians as Christ has loved you. You know what he's called you to do? To love your neighbor as yourself. You know what he's called you to do? He has called you to be nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, to apply language from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. You know what he's called you to do? He's called you to serve one another in love, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. You know what he's called you to do? He's called you to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in all things give thanks, for this is the will of God for you who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18 through 18. And if you want a whole bunch more, you just read through the New Testament. The description of what they did is not a prescription of what you ought to do. But it should confirm your faith and strengthen your faith that God so intervened to show clearly that he is the living God and the apostles were indeed his authoritative messengers. The apostles have come. The foundation of the New Testament church has been laid. God has not called you to be a part of the foundation that has already been laid about 2,000 years ago. But he has called you to know the doctrine that's set forth in his word. And he has called you to heed it. All right, one other point of clarification here that's important. According to God's word, and this could be preparatory for who knows what the days ahead hold. We have examples of miracles that can be done in the scriptures by the working of Satan or by demonic power. Moses did miracles by the power of God in Pharaoh's presence. But remember, the sorcerers of Egypt copied some of them through their secret arts. Exodus chapter 7, verse 11 and 12. Remember, God warned his people in Deuteronomy that there could be false prophets who would do signs and wonders among the people to lead them astray and to test them to see if they would love the Lord their God and hold fast to him. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4. Jesus himself warned that false Christs and false prophets would arise and would show great signs and wonders. Matthew 24, verse 24. Paul said that the coming of the lawless one, also known more commonly as the Antichrist, would be accompanied by the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 in fact, when you read in uh, Revelation 13, the depiction of the false prophet who promotes the worship of the beast, he's described as one who, quote, performs great signs so that even he makes fire, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So why do I say this? An unbiblical emphasis on signs and wonders will likely lead many right into apostasy and embracing Satan's lawless one when the time comes. 
make no mistake, as evidenced in the scriptures, you could look at the book of Job, the first two chapters, Satan's empowerment of such signs, doing of such signs, is not outside of God's sovereignty. But it is paramount, and of paramount importance, that every Christian be grounded in these scriptural truths. Does God answer prayers in amazing ways? Yes, he does. Can God still do amazing things? Of course he can. But you need a proper theology of what miracles were in the scriptural context. And you need to know that there are going to be those things, there are going to be those things that accompany the coming of the lawless one. So you do well to rest in the revealed word of God and follow what he has revealed and authenticated. All right, back to the text. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Still there. We're almost out of there. Uh, before we move on, I just don't want you to take for granted this description. Look at the second half of verse 12. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. I want to show you something here. God works through the miraculous, but he also works through quiet, ordinary providence. Look where they were in Solomon's porch. That was in the temple precincts. Who were the authorities over the temple precincts? You go back to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. They weren't those who were sympathetic to the gospel. The captain of the temple, the Sadducees, the priests, they wanted Peter and John arrested. Yet here they are, allowing Peter and John and the apostles to be in the temple courts, right in Solomon's porch, right near the court of the Gentiles. And the church is gathering, they're preaching, amazing things are happening. And yet the enemies are allowing this. What is that? What is that but the providential grace of God restraining the enemies of the gospel, to use language from Joseph Benson, so that they might tolerate the spreading of the gospel in those early days? God works through miracles, and God always is working through providence. Whether it's in the decree of Caesar Augustus to move Joseph and Mary right where they needed to be to fulfill scripture, whether it's in guiding the rivers so that Moses would be raised in Pharaoh's house, whether it's in guiding all the events of history, the Lord is working through quiet providence. And notice the description of the church. They were all what? With one accord. We've seen that quite a few times in the book of Acts as well, haven't we? Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And here, it's a reminder that unity in a local church is a priority. Now, let me just say this. I'm about to say something that is not reflective of an issue here, at least that I know of. But having been a Christian for quite a long time and having spoken with many Christians throughout the years, I've spoken with many people who have attended local churches and would say things like this. I disagree with the leadership, but I really like teaching Sunday school. Or they would say things like, I don't esteem the leadership, but I'm going to tough it out because I really think I can make a difference here. Not only do such ones not realize it, perhaps, but that's a flat-out um, act of disobedience against 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, which calls Christians to honor, appreciate, and esteem those who preside over them in the Lord. But to feign unity while harboring disunity is not right. Unity is so important in the local church. They may not be divisive externally, but they are divided internally, and they should go to an assembly where they can say, I do feel great unity here. So I don't know of any problems here. I don't know of any problems in this local church. 
but let me just tell everybody what I often say during the membership classes is that if at any point you feel divided internally, no one should be divisive externally, but if you ever feel divided internally, like I don't really feel like I'm in unity here, I don't know if I agree with the leadership, I don't know if I agree with the philosophy of ministry, I don't know if I agree with this, I don't know if I agree with that, then let me tell you, I love you in the Lord Jesus Christ, as does Pastor Joe. And you could talk to us about it, and we would tell you, if, if that's not something you could resolve in your heart, to go to another sound gospel preaching church where you would feel that sense of unity. Like, wow, is there something going on I don't know of? No, I've told you already. I don't know of any problems of that nature here. Thanks be to God. But I know human nature. And I know the fallen nature even, even when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So I just want to tell you if you ever have that feeling, you talk to us about it. And if that's not something that can be resolved, we still love you. And you want to be in a place where you're like, I am in agreement with what's going on here. I'm not going to just feign unity while I harbor some tiny measure of disunity. I'm going to be unified. Does that make sense? Praise God. All right, a little bit more. We'll walk through these verses and then we will go to the Lord's table together. Look at verse 13. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. I got some questions here. Who's the rest? Uh, who's the rest? I, I think the rest are those who are gathered in the temple precincts, um, but they didn't join the church. They didn't join to the apostles and other believers. Interestingly, that word join, it's an interesting word in the Greek. Uh, it's a Greek word, kalao. Literally, it means to glue. So it's as though you had these unbelievers who are in the temple precincts, and they see those believers, and they're like, we're not going to join to them or glue ourselves to them, which I think speaks about what the expectation was in the first century of what it meant when you joined a local church. You are joined with those believers, not in some like weird cultish way, but just in a way of like we share the same father, we share the same gospel, we love each other in Christ. So they're, they're looking at these believers, and they don't join them, but the people esteem them highly. Let me tell you, don't forget about the context. What had happened versus earlier? God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, right? So you had a whole bunch of people who are on the outskirts, and they say, whoa, God is that serious that he judges hypocrites like he did with Ananias and Sapphira? It was a shocking thing. Remember, Acts chapter 5, verse 11, fear spread not only in the church, but to the surrounding community of people who heard that. So I think in verse 13, you have this reaction of the people to say, okay, um, maybe I would join, but I'm not going to join because it seems like this is a little too serious for me. But from a distance, they did esteem the Christians. Why did they esteem the Christians? Well, I guess the people thought in light of the Ananias and Sapphira judgment that those who were a part of the church were really committed to Christ exalting, loving, and living. That they weren't playing games. How could they be playing games? The true God of heaven actually judged people like he did Ananias and Sapphira. I think that's what's going on in this context. Now, with that being said, look at verse 14. Verse 14 can come as a surprise. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You might not have expected that, right? You might have thought like, uh-oh, the Ananias and Sapphira incident is going to be a big PR problem. Like, how do we smooth this over? Like, oh, uh, it's not really what you all think. Like, you know, the, the, they didn't really die. Like, no, no, they really did. God really judged them. But yet, the church was growing. Yeah, you had some, like in Solomon's porch, that were like, I don't want to get too close to these Christians, but I respect them. But verse 14 says, believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Jesus was continuing to build his church. 
with multitudes, the scripture says, of both men and women. And how are these people described? Look at the verse 14. They're described as believers. They're, they're epitomized, if you will, or characterized by what they believed. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that he died for their sins and rose from the grave. They believe that he was the promised Messiah. Look also at the imperfect tense of the verb. I'll call your attention to that. That believers were increasingly added. The literal nature of that could be they kept being added. Like the judgment that God brought upon the church did not stop the adding unto the church. And notice where believers were added to. Were they added to the church? Yeah. But the text here says they were added to who? To the Lord. They were immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. They were added to the Lord. Look at verse 15. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. More habitual action caught in the verb tense. If you look at verse 15, they brought, suggests this continuous habitual action. Who's they? They are those who are friends or family of those who were sick. They're kind of like the friends in Mark chapter 2. Remember Jesus is teaching in a home and then all of a sudden there's an opening in the roof. Doubtless like dirt and whatever else is falling from the roof and then this paralytic is brought down. His friends had brought him, likely of course with his own agreement to go. So Jesus noticed their faith, the friends and that man. And he told him that his sins were forgiven. Well, you have a whole bunch of friends or family who said, okay, Peter might pass by this way. And if we just even maybe get these, our, our loved ones, in the way of Peter as he walks by, maybe even his shadow will bring healing. I mean, we're not told specifically that it, that it did happen, but it's not strange to think of it happening. God wrought many unusual signs by the hands of the Apostle Paul, for instance, in Acts chapter 19, verse 12, that even his apron or handkerchief was used to heal people. So it's not strange to think this happened. Think of the woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. So what do you have? You have the apostles during their daily routine or whatever. They're walking through the streets and the sick are laid on beds and couches. Cool note there without going into the details. The words that are used there in the Greek suggest two different kinds of mats that people would lay on. One kind of mat would be a bed Clinone in the Greek, which would denote, as Albert Barnes um, writes, a kind of soft and valuable bed on which the rich commonly laid. And then you have the next word, couches. Krabatone is the word in the Greek. And that connotes these coarse and hard couches on which the poor used to lie. It's as though right there in the text you're getting a picture that the rich and the poor alike were carried out into the streets so that the apostles might be used by God to heal them. Amazing, amazing. How is this happening? Through the power of God. Not through the apostles' own holiness. Remember what Peter had said. And we didn't heal this man through our own holiness or something like that. This was the grace of God working through them. And look at verse 16. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities. So that's cities like Bethlehem and Hebron, Emmaus. Jericho, Nazareth, Arimathea, Nain, and who knows wherever else. Multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Oh, how the gospel was confirmed. 
What's happening here? Among other things, the message that Jesus Christ is the only way to forgiveness of sins, the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is being confirmed with every miracle. Remember, the miracles are confirming the message and the messengers. Oh, how the gospel was confirmed. Word got around from outside of Jerusalem. Now you have people from Judea, surrounding places. The gospel's going out from Jerusalem to Judea. They're hearing of what's happening, and now they're coming. The gospel is advancing, and the enemies of the gospel are disturbed. This sets up the context for what's happening next. So we're like, this is amazing. But not everybody thought it was amazing. The Sadducees and the religious leaders didn't say, this is amazing. They essentially said, this has to stop. We've put up with this for too long. And that leads right into the passage where we will be, Lord willing, next week. I close with saying this. To use language from um, Bob Utley, let me close with this closing application. He said, physical healing is a poor substitute for spiritual salvation. Miracles are only truly helpful if they bring us to God. And I would say if they, by the grace of God, bring us to God. So why do I say that? You've heard today of miracles that were done through Jesus' ministry, but particularly through the ministry of the apostles. And if you hear about the miracles and the physical healings, but you miss spiritual salvation, that is one of the saddest things. It is the saddest thing that could happen. So I plead with you, grab the point of the miracles. The miracles were signs. They were signs to point to the only way that any of us could ever be forgiven. Not by trying our hardest, not by doing our best, but by the grace of God looking upon Jesus Christ. The one who did all the miracles that he did, but then was led to a cross. The one who was raised up with a crown of thorns upon his head, who had his back lashed. The one who was mocked, the one who was mocked and told by some, asked by some, prophesy, tell us who struck you. That one who laid down his life, who bore the wrath of God on behalf of all who would believe in him. All of those miracles were pointing to the fact there were arrows, they were signs saying, he's the one, he's the only way. Every bit of physical deliverance, every bit of being, being relieved from a demonic spirit or being relieved from a disease pointed to the ultimate healing that could only come through Jesus Christ. Spiritual healing that will lead to forever physical healing. When you have a glorified body and there's no sickness, no no death, none of that anymore. But there's only one way to get to that place of forgiveness. It's through faith in him. Every miracle. Think of every miracle in the scriptures through Christ and the apostles as saying, that's the only way. It's an arrow. It's a sign pointing to him. So if you see the miracles, if you marvel at the miracles, but you miss him, I cannot think of anything more sad than that. I cannot think of anything more serious than that. Because what is coming is a judgment, a holy, righteous judgment, when the dead will be raised at the great white throne and sentenced to the lake of fire. And the Son of God has borne the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to go there if by the grace of God you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So I exhort you, see the miracles, see what they point to, Call upon Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Say, today's a new day. I want to repent. I want to turn from my sin. 
May God give you a hatred for the sin that you once loved. And may you just have this different disposition towards sin and self-righteousness and, and say, I'm throwing myself completely upon the grace of God in Christ. It's my only hope. Jesus did it all. I believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we thank you for your kindness, for the multitudinous attestations and confirmations that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Father. I pray, Father, that all of us would treasure all of the ways in which you have authenticated, as it were, or validated publicly and proved and set forth the validity of your self-attesting word. Help us to trust you more and more. Help us, Heavenly Father, to do what you have called us to do. Help us to pray and to pray much and to pray large prayers, knowing that we come to a superior king who is lavish in his generosity. Help us to understand what your word says about the things we've studied and help us, above all, that by your grace we would have our eyes set upon Jesus as our only hope for forgiveness, that he took the penalty and that he rose from the grave so that all who believe in him would be forgiven of their sins and have everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.